millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at the Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. Okay, Will, to kick things off, have you heard of this recent saga of United States Rear Admiral Jack Meehoff? This is an interesting one. I would love to hear more about it from you. Okay, so just to back up for a moment, recently there was a public letter that was signed by, I think, roughly or more than 100 retired American generals and admirals who were basically regurgitating a bunch of bullshit that former President Trump has been saying about the 2020 election, calling into question or basically just slamming the legitimacy of President Joe Biden, accusing him of being a Marxist and taking America down the path of totalitarianism or some bullshit like that. It was real like internet has melted the brain of these retired admirals and generals kind of content. But buried in the signatories of this recent open letter that, I don't know, they were hoping would draw some attention to their public outrage towards Marxist-in-chief Joe Biden, was this one retired rear admiral named Jack Mehoff, spelled Jack as in Jack, last name M-E-E-H-O-F-F. Will, could you pronounce that name? Right. I mean, I, I, it would be Jack Mehoff or, for I think the, the juvenilely minded, Jack Mehoff. Exactly. So once people started noticing this in the press, on social media, it didn't take long for a reporter, I believe he his name is Christopher Matthias of the Huffington Post, it didn't take long for him to start corresponding with this individual who just completely punked one of the organizers of this letter, who somehow he got word that they were formulating this. He thought it was absolutely fucking ridiculous and just loaded with bad shit's conspiracy theory. So this guy decided to make up a fake name. He claims he is a veteran of the U.S. military. I believe that he claims he was someone stationed on a submarine and just signed the letter as jack me off just to fuck with them. Yeah, they fell for it. I mean, I think this letter is sort of interesting on its own. And, and it's so funny because it's, it is so self-seer. 
serious and, and generals. There's so many of these like retired generals and admirals who are like players on the far right now. Um, obviously, Michael Flynn being the most prominent example. But this letter is kind of typifies the, this thing where like Republicans are just like really going crazy these days with this idea that like the country's collapsing. This letter says our country has taken a hard left turn towards socialism and, mar- and a Marxist form of tyrannical government. I mean, it's really like chill out, guys. I don't think we're at that point yet. We don't even have like a sort of Obamacare type thing for them to really be panicking over. Right. It just doesn't scan in the same way as it did in the beginning of the Obama era. Like even before the Obama presidency started, like they really ramped up the, oh, it's basically going to be the Jeremiah Wright presidency. It's going to be all socialism all the time. It was not baggery then, but it just it just doesn't scan the same way with Joe Biden. He's just too boring. At the same time, you're, you're getting these kind of like Biden's Mussolini things. And at the same time, like really the big news I'm seeing today in conservative media is that like Biden did a poor job with his golf swing. It's not exactly like tyrannies on the rise here. But it is funny because these kind of like retired general group letters, and I think there's some of this going on in France too. There's always kind of this implication of like the military is unsettled, you know, maybe we'll step in this kind of stuff. But obviously that's not really the case here. Right. Rear Admiral Jack Mehoff would would be absolutely appalled at, to quote from the letter just one more time, the letter also claims that the Biden team is damaging the military's ability to wage wars through, quote, an infusion of political correctness, end quote. This is one of my favorite primary talking points, not just of former President Trump, but you see it all the time in conservative media and mainstream Republican circles of power nowadays. The military is basically not going to be able to fight another ISIS because of an infusion of political correctness, that the military is now nowadays too squishy on white supremacy or something like that. Right. I mean, this big storyline right now in the Biden administration on the right is this idea that political correctness has has really infiltrated the military to the extent that the big flashpoint right now is the idea that the critical race theory has uh, has seized control even of the Space Force. Well, OK, speaking of space, there has been something else that you've been following recently. I've done some good work on in the past few days about this UFO community that is exploding in this hail of lawsuits and legal drama and accusations of Satanism. Tell me a little bit more about that. This is an interesting case because it kind of gets to, I, I think, what one of the boom areas in the, the conspiracy theory landscape, which is kind of the crossover between sort of new age thinking and, and yoga communities and conspiracy theories. And so this story centers on this feud between sort of one of the kingpins of UFO conspiracy theories, this guy named Corey Good, and Gaia, which is a former yoga manufacturer. You may have a Gaiam yoga mat. I do. This is like hugely popular yoga company that now makes, it has a streaming service that matches both, it has yoga videos, but it also has like, let me tell you about these devil worshippers who run the government. This lawsuit, I mean, Corey Good's whole signature thing is he claims he used to work for this government agency called the Secret Space Program, and they went deep into space for 20 years, and they met with these these aliens called the Blue Avians, and so they're like blue bird people, and they're very friendly. Did they name them the Blue Avians, or did the Blue Avians somehow learn English and tell them that that's what their race is called? <laughs> so he dubbed them the Blue Avians. I, I do like, it's like, Earthling, we're kind of like your birds. He dubbed them the Blue Avians, or, or someone else did. Okay, l- like a colonizer would. I- right, right, exactly. And, and so he comes back from space, if you will, and he then, he trademarks, so he kind of, he gets teams up with Gaia, and they start making these 
these shows. And he trademarks a bunch of these terms, right? And so he trademarks like secret space program and blue avians. And then he's like, I'm going to be the only guy who talks about these aliens. The problem is, though, if you buy his idea that these are real things, I mean, this would be like if you worked for the FDA, then trademarked like the FDA, right? Or the, the Defense Department. And so he gets in this big fight with Gaia. He becomes this UFO influencer. They fire him or, or he resigns. And then suddenly, wouldn't you know it, Gaia gets a guy two months later with a very similar story who says, I too met the Blue Avians and I was in the secret space program. And he's like, hey, that's my thing. And they said, well, it's real, right? What's, you know, this guy worked for it too. <laughs> and so, so the way I kind of imagined it, it's like, you know, if if George R. R. Martin was like, yeah, Westeros is real. And like, here's all the guys I met there. And then someone else said, yeah, me too. And, and so now Corey Good's kind of in this spot where he's like, oh crap, like this guy's as he met the blue aliens too. There's just this big kind of feud right now in UFO land. And there's all this other kind of spicy stuff mixed in. I mean, he claims that, Corey Good claims that like his director on this show, he claims he had to produce 26 episodes in a week and he claims the guy aimed a gun at him. I mean, it's, it's just a very intense time. This is why we need the aliens to come and sort of bring us peace, at least in this community. <laughs> so, okay, well, is there any way you think you and I could get in on this? Right, here's the thing, right? I mean, this is a lucrative business. So Gaia right now, they don't make yoga mats anymore, just the streaming service. This company is publicly traded. It's valued at $200 million. But there's some great details here. I mean, this company does not seem to necessarily really be like cynically like, ah, these rubes, they, they believe in the bird people, whatever. I mean, it seems like based on some reporting that's been done by Business Insider a couple months ago that like they're all on board. I mean, there was sort of like there was a moment reportedly where they sort of said, look, if you don't believe in all this stuff, can't work here. And then some people who were working on a, another document, you know, quote, documentary about the Blue Avians, they were told, okay, well, they were working on the promotional materials and they, they claim they were told, okay, well, whatever promotional stuff y'all come up with, the Blue Avians are going to have to sign off on it. <laughs> they said, well, oh, that's a little odd, right? Because they're aliens and they like don't really exist. And they said, yeah, no, we're, we're going to have to sort of run it up the flagpole. And so, yeah, I mean, Guy has denied this happened. I, I think Business Insider's reporting was pretty solid. So so this is just kind of a very colorful corner of this world. And it's now locked in this, in this law lawsuit over, over who can talk about the aliens. And also simmering beneath this, there's also allegations that Gaia was smearing good as devil worshippers? Yes, this is sort of like when things get down and dirty, right? In a regular business, maybe you're messing with somebody's business relationships, you know, maybe you're you're stealing corporate documents, you're getting underhanded. In this world, you try to convince people that your business rival is eating babies. And so in this case, this Corey Good basically his his co-host had a falling out with Gaia too. And he put out this letter and he said, "Look, I had to leave Gaia because they were making me promote this other show, and I felt it promoted luciferianism." Now, I realize the average, maybe people aren't familiar with Luciferianism as a concept, but Luciferianism is this kind of code word that's very popular in QAnon and Pizzagate communities and more broadly in sort of conspiracy theory worlds. Luciferianism is like, it's devil worship with like plenty of like, eating babies and like using their blood for ritual sacrifices, that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of, Luciferianism is kind of at the heart of what QAnon people believe. And so whenever you hear that, that's like like a big like blinking code word. Like I'll be watching videos and, and it's not explicitly QAnon and then someone's like we gotta get all these Luciferians and it's like, okay, here we go. So in this case, he says, I was, Guy was making me promote this show about like promoting Luciferianism and I was concerned because people are, this was a couple years ago at the time and people 
people, you know, this was about a year after the Comet Ping Pong shooting. And he sort of said, like, man, people are mad about Pizzagate. So, like, I really don't want to be associated with all these Luciferianisms. Like, maybe someone will come and shoot me. But, but he was sort of taking it as, like, like a real thing, that Luciferianism is a real thing. And then Gaia says, hey, this guy's implying that we're involved in this cabal. And this is hurting our business because people are, are starting to think because their audience is, like, the target demo for people who believe in Luciferianism. And so suddenly they're going, like, ah, you know, people are going to think we're Pizzagate people. Why does it never take very long for these things to pivot back to QAnon and or Pizzagate? I would like one large overarching conspiracy theory community to just siphon itself off from that terrain. Right. They kind of need a new shtick. Why does it always overlap? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, right. It is a good question. I mean, there's actually some interesting conspiracy theory research on this. I've been doing for my book. And in terms of there's this kind of world of like stigmatized knowledge. Right. So basically, if you're already into UFOs or if you're already into like natural healing, you're kind of already of a mindset that you're willing to accept things that have already been kind of dismissed by the the establishment. And so I I think that's the explanation. But just in terms of like eating babies and stuff, it just really gets people going. And the last thing I'd say about Luciferianism. So one of the enzymes that's involved in vaccine research is called luciferase. And this is a real thing. It's called luciferase. And I was like, no. And of course, I mean, the the Luciferian people have really keyed in on it. I mean, this is like when Microsoft during the, the height of the pandemic rolled out this ad campaign featuring Marina Abramovich, who's like kind of a, you know, one of these celebrity artists who's like targeted by Pizzagate people. And I was like, you got to be kidding me that they're teaming up with her. But so sometimes people really blunder into it. So if only Lucifer race was named just about anything else. Okay, so Swin, so you've been doing some reporting on what's going on with sort of perennial character, sometimes blunderer, Rudy Giuliani, who's in some hot water. But, you know, based on, you know, some reporting you have this week, uh, it seems like Trump world is not exactly helping out old Rudy. So... Ever since the federal raid in late April on Rudy Giuliani's appointment and office, Giuliani's allies, he himself and his lawyers have been furiously brainstorming, okay, what is our next move? How are we going to legally and in court challenge what the federal agents have seized from Giuliani? And also, how are we going to be able to enlist the help of people, including but not limited to former President Trump, to come to the aid of his dear friend Rudy? So in recent weeks, we found through our reporting that the laundry list of emergency demands or requests, I should say, that Team Giuliani have been trying to ferry directly to Donald Trump includes putting out a strong verbal or written statement saying that what Giuliani was doing during the Trump-Ukraine scandal was all on behalf of his client, then-President Donald J. Trump, and therefore could not have possibly constituted illegal and unregistered foreign lobbying on behalf of Ukrainian figures, which is, of course, the broad allegation the federal investigators are currently looking into to see if Giuliani committed a crime. They're also essentially begging Trump to help pay Giuliani's mounting legal fees. They They want Trump to sign on to an eventual legal motion that would ask a court to have the feds throw out any evidence or communications that they seized dating back to 2019 from Giuliani that they argue is covered and therefore protected by attorney-client privilege as it pertains to people such as Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. Why won't Trump just help his guy out here? I mean, what's going on? Well, 
through our reporting, we found out that Trump has been privately telling people that one of the main reasons he doesn't want to, for instance, put out a public statement saying, oh, this wasn't illegal lobbying or illegal foreign lobbying. Rudy was doing this all on my behalf was because he's been privately telling people in recent weeks. It's like I wasn't always aware of everything Rudy was doing when it came to these Ukrainian idiots or these Ukrainian figures. So he's just going to hang him out to dry? I mean, he keeps privately expressing sympathy for what his friends and former attorney Rudolph Giuliani has been going through, but he keeps refusing to commit behind closed doors to actually sticking his neck fully out there to help save this guy because Trump and his team keep discussing that they don't know what the feds actually have. They don't know exactly what Giuliani was doing with regards to these shady Ukrainian figures, and they're not sure if the feds are going to end up using anything that Trump could end up saying publicly right now against Trump and or Giuliani at this point. So the former president and his guys are pretty much on the same page right now that the best strategy right now is for him to lay low and people in Team Giuliani keep talking about how pissed they are about this. They, they do think that there is a very good chance that Donald Trump is at least preparing to just leave Giuliani to twist in the wind. Whereas if you talk to people who are close to Giuliani, they will tell you that he has privately told them in recent days and recent weeks that no, Donald Trump wouldn't do that to me. When the moment is right, he will step up and do what is right for me and help me out. I mean, isn't that what they always think, though? That is always what they say. That That's always what they say. Trump wouldn't do me like that until, like, all right, just keep refreshing, like, Trump's blog when he's like, this total loser. I, I never knew this guy. There are roughly 8 million examples of Trump screwing over people once close to him, including another personal attorney <laughs> to him when it was politically or legally inconvenient to him. There are limited examples. So, Swin, isn't there some deal where, like, Giuliani is owed this, like, 20 grand a day retainer for his work on the election, and now his people want Trump to pay it, and, and Trump's like, yeah, no thanks? Trump has long told his advisors that his understanding is that Rudy was doing almost all of this stuff for him, including the effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, completely pro bono. That is Trump's conviction. And for a bunch of months now, he has been unwilling to budge from it. Well, I just love this thing where prosecutors are closing in and Rudy's like getting down in the nitty gritty about what's attorney client privilege and all this. And then on his blog, Trump is like, I love Arizona. You know, I sure hope they overturn the election for me. <laughs> Keep scanning those ballots with UV lights. And they're like, oh, geez, Trump, you want to help out here? Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, we sit down with writer and director Larry Charles. 
You may be familiar with Larry's work writing or helming episodes of TV shows such as Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Entourage, to name a few. I will always know Larry Charles as the legend who wrote the infamous 1990 Seinfeld script about Elaine Bennis purchasing and brandishing a gun, an episode deemed by the cast and crew to be so dark that it was never actually filmed. As a director, Larry has collaborated with comedian Sasha Baron Cohen on the first Borat movie, Bruno, and The Dictator as well as Nicolas Cage on Army of One. Furthermore, Larry directed the one and only Bob Dylan in the 2003 cult classic, Masked and Anonymous. Fun fact, Larry was also raised in a Brooklyn apartment complex called Trump Village, which was of course named after Donald Trump's father, Fred. You can follow Larry at LarryCharlesism on Twitter.com for insights and outrages. Larry, welcome to Fever Dreams. Th- thank you for having me. Well, first thing I want to ask you, you were one of the top writers on Seinfeld for a long time. So to ask you kind of a hack but fun question, if Seinfeld were still on today, what would you as a writer for the show have the characters be doing during the Trump and post-Trump eras? Well, I think I would probably try to be, I think one of the keys to the show in the first place was really how honest it was about the dark side of human nature. And that's what made it so funny. We were kind of talking about forbidden things that people didn't usually traffic in in comedy. And when I thought about how Seinfeld would be survive in this kind of environment, in this television environment. And I look around, I think about bringing those characters to the 21st century, and it seems almost like a natural, like wouldn't Kramer be in QAnon? He'd be a believer in QAnon, but he might also be in Antifa at the same time to cover his bets. That was one thing I thought of. I thought by now, Elaine might have been married a couple of times. She's probably developed a pill habit of some sort. She's been in and out of rehab. And George might have committed suicide by now, quite frankly. <laughs> Things hadn't gotten, if he didn't get out of his parents' house, he's already killed his fiance. It starts to catch up with them, I think. And Jerry's Jerry, you know, that would be what's funny about it is that their lives have all gotten so much more desperate, but Jerry's still Jerry. Nothing affects Jerry. And that's what's so great about Jerry. Well, you were one of the writers who were actually instrumental in crafting the character of Kramer. Why do you think he would be so into QAnon? I mean, I'm not sure Kramer would be a Trump fan, would he? Look, there's a lot of ways you could write this. You know, he could start off being a Trump fan or fascinated by Trump or think Trump is the Messiah. Or There's so many different weird theories about Trump that I could see him getting caught up in that rabbit hole. That's the key with him. He loves the rabbit hole. Most people want to stay out of the rabbit hole. He's looking to dive in. So he would be some sort of QAnon and Antifa fusion. I think so. I think he would find that contradiction somehow. He'd be able to manage and reconcile that contradiction. And you also mentioned the last time we spoke that if Seinfeld were today, it could not be, it could not look like it once was. It would have to be like cinema verite or something like that. Well, yeah, I think that the, for me anyway, I mean, look, there are still three and four camera proscenium type of audience live sitcoms done on TV. I find the form to be very antiquated myself. So I, if I was, think about the Seinfeld reunion on Curb, I think it would start to look more like a Curb show, an HBO type of a show, rather than an NBC show from the 90s. The updated shooting on location in New York, I mean, imagine the layers that you would get by actually shooting on location, single camera, documentary style. It would add an urgency and a spontaneity to the show that Curb has and that Seinfeld wasn't able to quite match because of the limitations of that form at that time. 
so Larry, you know, obviously you're a, you're both a, a participant and observer in uh, the comedy and satire industry. How do you think uh, comedians and uh, the comedy business in general handled the Trump years, and where do you think they uh, fell short? Well, I think one of the problems with comedy is the more successful it is, the more cooperative with the corporate culture it has to be. So as long as it was safe, you, you know, it's very easy. To, it's very easy to criticize anybody as long as it's safe. You know, it's when uh, you see very few comedians. I mean, I love Stephen Colbert. I love Trevor Noah. I love those guys. Seth Meyer, John Oliver, obviously Bill Maher is a close friend of mine. And I feel like these guys are working their asses off. They work their asses off to bring Trump down. They were very committed to it. But they are also, you know, expressing their opinions in a very corporate environment. And so, look, look, if you remember, Bill got fired from his original show, Politically Incorrect, for saying something about 9-11. So it's okay to be controversial up to a certain point, and you never quite know what that point is. And I think because of that, you see a lot, a lot of the comedy winds up encouraging and making us feel more secure about our life situation and our environment, and like the Trump administration— instead of looking to tear it down and destroy it. And you don't see much of that anarchic comedy uh, in the mainstream, you know? You have to kind of look outside the mainstream, onto social media and other places to see people who are really doing what I would consider to be truly transgressive comedy. Right. So obviously SNL was a big mainstream comedic presence that dangled over not just the rise of Trump, but then the Trump era and after it itself. When you watch that, do you put that in the category of some of mainstream comedy's failings over the past five years? Yeah, I do. And let me also preface that by saying I think the casts of Saturday Night Live have always been incredible. I mean, today's cast is an incredible group of performers, Kate McKinnon and all those people, Bo and Yang, whoever it might be. They're great, great performers and they're fantastic. But again, they are working within a very, very corporate environment. And in a way, what's what's symbiotic and almost perverse about this is that these shows have a relationship with Trump or they had a relationship with Trump in which which they also benefited. Lenny Bruce once said, if there was no crime or, you know, sickness, I'd be on the breadline behind the cops and the doctors. And it's the same thing here. They are making their money by making fun of Trump. So they need Trump to keep their own brands afloat. And that's kind of a, a bad arrangement for satire. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that Alec Baldwin didn't manage to actually bring the president down a peg. <laughs> <laughs> right. He made him into a sweet, lovable guy, really. And that's something that Saturday Night Live has done consistently. If you think back to Chevy Chase doing Gerald Ford, he made him into a sweet, cuddly guy. Reagan was a sweet, cuddly guy. And that's a mistake when you portray these people because it, it makes them much more palatable than they really are. Right. And it's funny because when you're talking about some of your criticisms of mainstream comedy over the past four or five years, it in a weird way mirrors, I think, a lot of the good faith critiques that observers have had about mainstream media and certain sectors of it and how they have handled Donald Trump for the past half decade. Uh, the criticisms of like the symbiotic relationship and how, OK, like one is supposed to hold power to account, but in a way, both parties kind of need each other in that situation. To me, it's they're vastly different sectors of industry, but it's a very similar critique, no? 
Well, that the comedy that we're talking about to me is an arm of the mass media. Mass media comedy is just a, is a part of this larger mass media discussion that we're having. However, and I was thinking about this, it seems to me that in some ways you were more likely to get truth, to get journalism, to get insights from Stephen Colbert or Trevor Noah than you were during the Trump administration from the New York Times or the Washington Post. And so, so to me, they even had a bigger responsibility and they failed even more miserably. So, Larry, I mean, where do you think comedy and particularly political comedy is headed in our current era? I mean, obviously, we with Trump off the scene, more or less, obviously, there's a big vacuum. I mean, so, so where do you think things are going? Well, I think it's very I think it's very fragmented. I mean, I was thinking back to like even Louis C.K. And I think what's happened is that comedy is very much reflective of the society. The society has broken apart into many fragments, many pieces, many factions. And I think you see the same thing in comedy. You see trans people doing comedy. You see gay people doing comedy. You see Asian people doing comedy. You see African-American people doing comedy. And you see older white guys, the old school comedians doing comedy. And they really are almost their own little countries of comedy. And the question is, will those disparate voices in comedy eventually get synthesized into a new form of comedy? And that's what I'm kind of trying to watch, you know, trying to observe that process. So if you were in charge of some of these shows, how would you, I know this is a broad and kind of maybe impossible question, but how would you have done it? If you were at the helm of SNL or something like that, what would you have done over the past five years to correct those, as you've described them, failings? Well, it's a very provocative question, actually. I never, I've never thought of that question, but I think what I would do is sort of along the lines of what we're talking about, I think I would break free of the format that they've been in all these years, the sketch format that just logistically is a very tough thing to pull off. Pulling off a live show with all the changes in wardrobes and the wigs and the cue cards and people knowing their lines, it's a lot every week. I would strip all that away. I would stop doing like sketches on a stage. Again, I would make it a much more guerrilla theater type of show, a much more dangerous show. I think that's what, if Saturday Night Live was dangerous, if politicians were shuddering at the thought of what they're going to do this weekend, I think then it would be a much more effective show. Right. In, instead of sort of seeing it as a weird compliment in a way of, oh, my God, one of the most famous people in comedy is playing me and kind of turning me into this lovable oaf. Exactly. Ex- exactly. We shouldn't be flattering these comedians. I mean, we shouldn't be flattering these politicians. We should be, you know, destroying their reputations if they deserve it. <laughs> One of the things that you've talked about before is when you're talking about mainstream comedy, um, in a weird way, the two fields of profession that have helped get us to where we are today, not just with Trumpism, but the broader political culture, described it as a fusion of both comedy and pro wrestling. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that in the first place, Trump himself really uh, fancied himself a funny guy. <laughs> I think he had like comedy aspirations. And I think the problem is he's just not funny. He has no kind of insights into himself. He has no sense of humor about himself. He's obviously a very thin-skinned person who prefer to lash out at somebody when he's insulted. But I think he sees himself as like a modern Don Rickles, like offending people for laughs, except that he's not funny. And then the other part of it, the wrestling part of it, I think he really was attracted to wrestling because wrestling is that perfect formula of the fake pretending to be real. And I think his whole life is the fake pretending to be real, you know, and I think he has used that And you see how an audience, the audience wants to participate. One of the reasons that Trump's rallies were so successful is because they are like wrestling matches. If you watch a wrestling match, 
You see the audience is as much involved with it as the wrestlers. And that's what Trump provided for his audience. He made those rallies interactive so that the audience also felt that they were part of the show. They know it's fake, but they're having a great time with the fakeness. And that's what happens in wrestling. And that's what happened at Trump's rallies, I think. And right now we live in a time where those lines are so blurred that the fake becomes the real, you know? So Larry, I mean, what political comedy uh, do you like these days that's coming out? Again, I respect the craftsmanship of, and I laugh a lot at like Trevor Noah or Stephen Colbert or the late night guys. I love those super cuts that they do. They really illustrate the absurdity and hypocrisy of whoever they're making fun of, especially Trump. But still, it is it is that kind of mainstream TV thing. So a, a lot of the things that make me laugh in that realm now are not on regular television, but more in the realm of social media. There are these two guys, Jason and Davram, who call themselves the good liars. And they've been doing really under the radar of mainstream media. They've been doing a lot of the kind of stuff that Sasha does only without all the apparatus the structure around it. So they will go in themselves with a little camera and just disrupt. Uh, like I've seen them disrupt, and it's on social media, you should check it out if you haven't seen it. But they disrupt the Trump rally by calling him boring and they wind up getting thrown out. And they're also equal opportunity offenders. They've, they've done things with Andrew Yang and they've done things with all every politician you can imagine of all stripes. Hillary Clinton, for instance, too. So I find them to be really transgressive. They have gigantic balls. They're willing to wade in. They're willing to have get physically confronted even. And that has, to me, a lot of impact. You can feel that viscerally when you watch it. And I think that comedy is missing that visceral quality to some degree which Sasha is also a purveyor of, and of course was very present in, in Borat in those movies. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great that you bring up the good liars. I watched some video where they were asking Michael Flynn about QAnon and basically got punched out by his security. <laughs> they were like, why are you so into QAnon? And he did his kind of song and dance where he's like, what are you talking about? And then they start laughing at him and he just gets incredibly mad. Yeah, yeah, he, they, they will get right up there. They look like two nice guys, so it's very easy for them to infiltrate, uh, which is a key to this. They're able to get in almost anywhere, and then they do their thing, and they do not, that nothing deters them. They get their, they get their man, you know, and I do appreciate that because that was part of our goal with, with uh, the Sasha movies, too, is you got to get your man. you got to get that scene, you know? Right. Is it, uh, do you generally find that that type of political comedy is way more effective or funnier if there actually is a risk that you will get physically abused? I mean, look, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm not looking to get beat up or hit or I don't even want to be chased particularly. But I do think that there is something to that risk, that risk, that urgency. That's where the edge lies. That's where you're going to see something that you couldn't you couldn't possibly predict. And that's when things start to explode. You know that as funny as Stephen Colbert is, he's reading from cue cards. Many writers have sat down and written his jokes for the night. And he's in this beautiful theater telling these jokes. It's a very enjoyable experience. It's an entertaining experience. But when Sasha goes out and does a scene or Jason and Davram, the good liars do, they, you know, there's a, there's a chance that we would have these discussions when we did Borat of like, well, we may not come back. And so we had to kind of have all these contingency plans and be able to face disaster to do the comedy. And that lends a certain air of urgency to it that nothing can replace. Wasn't there a moment during the filming of Borat during the national anthem scene that almost led to a riot at that stadium? Or am I misremembering that? 
No, that's true. It's funny because the original Borat movie was started by Todd Phillips. And then then he had to leave the project very quickly. But that was the scene. Everything that he shot was pretty funny, but most of it was unusable for a variety of reasons. But that scene was one of the scenes that he shot. And that was a brilliant scene. And I insisted, no matter what else we shot, that that scene had to be in the movie because I didn't want to take the chance of trying to get another horse. That horse behind Borat falls spontaneously. And when you get those moments, you have to you have to embrace that. So I was so happy for that scene to be in the movie. And yeah, it almost caused a riot. Sasha has caused uh, many near riots. And so that's something that to me, that's comedy. Causing a riot, being like Stravinsky or Boonwell or something like that in comedy and causing audiences to riot, that's reaction. That's real reaction. So over the past few years, is there a particular reason that you haven't yourself taken on something that if not being a Trump project, would be something like, uh, why haven't you done something on MAGA in the past few years? Or why haven't you done something about Republicans or Democrats in Congress? Is Is there a reason that you haven't engaged directly with that in the past couple of years? Well, actually, I'm always working on a lot of projects. and But one of the things that I've discovered, I mean, and this kind of goes to this conversation we're having about urgency and comedy. If you are trying to, at the beginning of the Trump administration, if you tried to put together a satire on, on the Trump administration, it wouldn't come out for two, three years if you get it made at all. Uh, Davram and Jason, the good liars, were trying to get a movie off the ground during the Trump administration. It's just very hard. And then the pandemic came along which also put kind of a halt to that sort of thing. I didn't want to sit around and try to develop a project for four years that then might not get made. For me, the social media, I prefer to tweet. I prefer to just like throw out the one, that's my comedy right now in a way, is the social media, because I'm able to say whatever I want. I'm able to say it directly to the audience and have this interactive relationship with them without all, again, all the apparatus and structure that separates you from the urgency and the immediacy of the audience. The stuff I've been working on, I'm producing and it's going to get made. But if you're too topical, the time is going to pass you. And Trump is such a a larger than life, farcical, absurdist character that trying to top him satirically and losing time in the process might make your thing seem dated. So for me, the social media was a better way for me to comment on the administration or whatever issues might be going on and try to be satirical, try to be hyperbolic, try to be funny about it sometimes, but also have impact at the same time. Impact is a key thing to me. It's almost pointless if it doesn't have any impact. In the past few years, there have been political projects that you've said have crossed your desk before that you were hoping to get off the ground and who knows if they're going to happen at this point. Something that you said that you were looking at that you had hoped to direct at one point is a Lee Atwater project. In part, not just because he himself is such a fascinating Republican figure, but it says so much about how we got to where we are today with not just with Trump, but the modern day Republican Party and conservative movement. Yeah, that was one of the best. I get a lot of scripts and I usually get about five pages and then I give up. The Lee Atwater script I actually read in one sitting because I liked it that much. And yes, that's why, because it worked on all those levels. You had a great, amazing, one of a kind American character. You had kind of this great sort of cautionary fable about American politics. You had this whole harbinger of what was to come in the story of Lee Atwater. He in many ways, is the is the modern inventor of the of the GOP in a way the the kind of like 
you know, forget about reality, create your own reality, alternative reality, GOP that exists today. The seeds of that were really planted by Lee Atwater, who showed the Republicans that they could win by lying, by making up stuff. And it worked. And that's been a formula that they've kind of stuck with. So it was it worked on all those different levels. It was really well made, a script, very well structured, really funny, very emotional. It had everything. Great perform, you know, options for performers to step into these roles. So that was a very exciting movie. But as we talked about, that script's been around about 10 years and it hasn't gotten made yet. So it's still making the rounds. And you can see you can see why Hollywood is kind of, you know, Hollywood likes to choose its politics carefully. And so they like to go back as far as they can. And then they're able to pat themselves on the back with 60s liberalism. So this movie is a little bit more politically incorrect because it puts it puts the burden on everybody, all of us, that we've, we've made this country the way it is. And people we allowed people like Lee Atwater to flourish. I think those movies are less attractive to the Hollywood mainstream, you know? This has been a script that I've actually been fascinated with for about 10 years because it started with Adam McKay, if I'm remembering correctly. And since it's sort of been in this unproduced hellscape for a little while, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Just because I have no idea if this thing will ever get made and a Lee Atwater movie would be so fascinating. I think you mentioned that Bill Hader could have possibly played Lee Atwater or something like that. Bill Hader, I think, would be a great choice. And he was somebody I thought about as I read it. But that's one of the great things about the Lee Atwater part. The role really could be played by a lot of people and really get a lot out of it. There's a lot there. He's such an interesting three-dimensional, contradictory sort of character that I think I think a lot of actors would be excited about playing him. I think Adam McKay is still involved on some level. I think it might be his production company that has the option on the script. I'm not really sure about any of that. The problem is, look, we're on the we're talking to each other right now, all of us. And we're excited maybe about this idea of a Lee Atwater project. Now let's go outside after we're done with this and ask the first 10 people we bump into if they know who Lee Atwater is. (laughs) And that's the reason why you're not going to get millions of dollars to make that movie, you know? Fresh hell. You died and now you're going to fresh hell. So now we're moving on to a segment that we've lovingly dubbed Fresh Hell, in which we introduce our audience to something that will absolutely bewilder them, but that is taking place right now in the real world. So, a few days ago, the New York Times came out with a story about how these wannabe pro-Trump spies during the past presidency were trying to ensnare employees of the FBI and Trump's then-national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, by trying to covertly record them talking shit about Donald Trump, and the operation mostly completely fell apart uh, because of how incompetent these wannabe super spies were at these prospective stings. One of the people involved with it is a former Survivor contestant who tried to use her skills and team up with the James O'Keefe crew to help take down the Trump-era deep state. This is someone who you actually became rather familiar with during the past presidency in your own work, and she has cropped up in this new way. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a fascinating story overall. This is great reporting from Adam Goldman and, and Mark Mazzetti in the New York Times. This story itself sort of revealed these various attempts to record 
Trump members of either law enforcement or, or intelligence in D.C., you know, trash-talking Trump over the past few years. I loved the national, like, the attempt to entrap H.R. McMaster was, oh, we're going to just catch him at his favorite restaurant, as though the freaking national security advisor isn't a little wary of strangers approaching him in restaurants. But yeah, I mean, in this case, you have James O'Keefe, and, and I should say both James O'Keefe and the person in question here, Anna Kate, have both denied this and, and have sort of hinted that they're going to sue the Times. I don't think they have like they've raised specific corrections. But yeah, so James O'Keefe operated allegedly this this house in Georgetown where young women would bring or would attempt to bring FBI agents back and oh hey, you know, great date, you know, great Tinder date. Don't you think Peter Strzok rules? <laughs> Say it into the mic. Did you love entrapping George Papadopoulos? Oh, whoa, what kind of date is this? So I mean, as far as we know, you know, it didn't work, right? Because we didn't see any of these videos. But but one of the people who was living at this house, according to the Times, was Anna Kate. And this just, like, gets to you to, you know, people say, why does Jacob Wool? why does someone like Jacob Wool think he can pull all these schemes off? But then you get stories like this, which suggest that, like, these kind of schemes are just constantly bubbling around Washington, particularly on the right, these sort of, like, freelancing like, little ruses. And so in this case, Anna Kate, the Survivor contestant, I don't think she got very far in Survivor. She kind of has rebranded herself as this conservative activist. And so apparently she was working with O'Keefe, but, but she's also a fascinating character for me because she kind of does these kind of attempts to brand herself as she sort of picks up these causes and they don't really work out. And, and the one I'm fascinated by is is one from last year that involved a rather controversial falconer. A falconer. Is this like a pro-Trump falconer or a... Well, he's a sort of a mysterious character. It's, it's hard to pin down his allegiances besides the cause of falconry. So after the election, there was this big scramble on for someone who could dispute the election. And, you know, in most cases, we ended up with cases like we see in Arizona with like the UV lights and the markers and all this kind of stuff. But Anna Kate kind of hitched her hitched her wagon to a different character. A guy named, and I'm not making up his name here, Alan Parrott, a falconer. Oh, come on. <laughs> a falconer and I believe Sikh or Muslim convert who, so he, has, he wears this big turban and he's got a huge beard. He's an American guy and who has been sort of a controversial figure in the world of falconry for decades. And this guy claimed that he was a falconer for various Gulf sheikhs in the Middle East and that they had told him that basically, it's kind of this convoluted story that the U.S. had essentially let Osama bin Laden escape during the Obama administration and that basically Biden had shot down, had ordered the shooting down of a, of a helicopter full of Navy SEALs to cover this up. And so after the election, his, I mean, it's really this guy who just emerges from nowhere because of his big beard and everything. People were calling him like the purple wizard. I mean, these are his ostensible supporters. He emerges from nowhere and Anna Kate, it is like this guy, I, I'm like backing this guy to the hilt. So the allegation here is that Biden was an administrator of uh, something even worse than Benghazi. Right. Because he was ordering the direct assassination of U.S. military personnel to cover something up. And right. To cover and in ass. fact, there is some like sort of nascent tie to Benghazi where it's like the people in Benghazi were killed also to cover this up. Okay, so there's some things about the Obama era that I don't quite remember. Same with the Trump era. Was this Falconer able to take down the deep state? Right, right. No, he was not. I mean, so, so this Falconer, but, but sort of the Anna Kate connection here is, so she really becomes, I, I would say, the most vocal supporter of the Falconer's cause. 
And but something you see a lot with these kind of characters and and, you know, whether it's Q and QAnon or someone like Jacob Wall or or just these various characters, there's always like a big stash of documents right around the corner that's going to prove everything. And then just coincidentally, it never appears. And so you sort of run out the string as long as you can. And then, as is the case with Alan Parrott, you kind of you disappear. And so in this case, Anna Kate was like, don't worry, like the Falconer is about to drop this like really damaging stuff. And and people would say like, hey, you know, what's up with the Falconer? What's up with Alan Parrott? And it never happened. But while this was going on, I I did a little research into the Falconer's background. And I mean, this was a guy who, Falconer is a very, a very fraught community. And so he had referred to Falcons as feathered cocaine because they were such valuable things to smuggle. He had turned informant in this big Falcon smuggling ring. What are they smuggling? They're smuggling falcons. Okay. I'm not sure that clears anything up for me, but please continue. <laughs> and so he's a very controversial figure. He sort of ended up in Mongolia, where he was sort of running a feud with the Mongolian falconry industry. He was eventually banned from Mongolia for his controversial views on falcons. And so this is a guy who maybe is not the most reliable character. And so Anna Kate really went all in. And unfortunately, even today, you'll see people either replying to her tweets or just sort of idly saying, hey, where's the falconer? When is the falconer's bombshell? Evan is going to drop so we can get Biden out of office and bring Trump back in. Okay, and this is the same Anna Kate who was allegedly involved in the broader operation during the Trump administration to try to help save Trump by trying to ensnare random FBI employees in audio stings saying bad or nasty things about Donald Trump or something like that. Exactly, yeah. The Times reports that, that she was involved in that. It's so funny how these, and you know, part of what attracts me to this work and, and I think makes this field so compelling to cover, is that you end up with the same characters, right? And they kind of rotate in and out and everyone's sort of working an angle. So, Will, let me ask you one thing. Do you know what the Falconer is up to now? Well, actually, I just messaged the Falconer because I, this was all on my mind. And I was like, I got to get, maybe he's going to come out and admit this was all fake or maybe he's still sticking with it. But unfortunately, no. I mean, he lives up in, I think, Maine and he keeps kind of a low profile with the Falcons. But, you know, Anna Kate herself, she's had to come out and say, oh, man, like, you know, I, I too, was really believed in the Falconer, y'all. I, I We were all duped by him. And, and it's almost like a story out of like a Thousand and One Arabian Nights. This Falconer rolls in with big promises and sort of disappears into the desert. <laughs> I don't know what to believe in anymore. If you can't trust the shady anti-deep state falconer, <laughs> there's very little in the American political mystique you can appreciate or believe in anymore. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.